welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, you are the one and only living and true God. You are infinite in your being and perfection, your most pure spirit, invisible, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty. Father, you are most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of your own immutable and most righteous will for your own glory. You are also most loving and gracious and merciful and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. You forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. You are the rewarder of those who diligently seek you. You are most just. And we know, Lord, from your word that you hate all sin and that your judgments are terrifying. And Lord, we know from your word that we are sinners. And Lord, right now we want to confess to you that we have sinned in both thought and in word and in deed. We have sinned in the things we've done and in many things we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And so before we open your word here, Lord, we want to confess that we are truly sorry and repent of our sin. And we would love to receive the mercy that you give in Jesus to all who repent of their sin and trust in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Father, we thank you so much that you have sent your son Jesus because you love the world, you love people, and you've sent him to die for our sins so that no one needs to perish, but all could have eternal life that trust in your son. We thank you that you have welcomed us through the body and blood of Christ into fellowship with you. We thank you that through faith in Jesus, we've been adopted as your daughters and sons. And Lord, now we gladly enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise. Father, we want to give you all glory and praise your holy name. We ask, Lord, that during this time that you would feed us with the holy food of your word and of your table. Lord, you alone can order the unruly wills and affections that we have. Only you, Lord, can make us to love the things you command and delight in the things you promise. And so we pray, Lord, you would change our desires and our loves and our wants and that you would conform them to your word, to your character. We pray you do all this for the glory of your son, Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. This morning, though, we're in James. We're in James 4, 1 through 12. And James starts off with this really great question. And his really great question is this. In verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't that a great question? Isn't that an important question? Wouldn't you like to hear the answer to that question? What causes fights and quarrels among you? It would be really important for you to think through what are your answers to that question right now? You think about quarrels with friends, coworkers, people in this church, with your spouse. What causes those fights and quarrels? You make a list. Make a list of what you're thinking. Because, guys, the answer to that question really tests your awareness of what really drives your responses in your relationships. Because your list of what causes fights and quarrels among you says a lot about how aware you are of what your real problems are, where your real problems lie. And so this question is great. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And he gives an answer. Is it not this? Your passions that are at war within you. And you're like, oh no. That's not the answer I wanted, right? 
you know, I had answers, and none of them were that, okay? None of my answers were that. It was that other person or that circumstance or, you know, anybody in my situation would react the same way. No, he says, what causes it? It's passions which war within you. Guys, this passage is telling us that battles between us are caused by battles within us. Our battles between us are caused by battles within us. That's not the news we wanted, but it is the news we needed, right? Our relationships, guys, bring out our sin. They don't cause our sin. They bring it out, okay? They bring it out, and that's why marriage makes life hard, and adding kids to it makes life harder, it's more relationships. It brings out more of your sin. A lot of times we think that the sin or the, the conflict is all due to the other people. It's not. The relationships bring out and show us our own sin. I mean, I was thinking, you know, when, I first, when we first got married, Tasha and I, um, it, was, uh, it didn't cause a whole lot of conflict. Things were pretty good because we like to do all the same things. We like to both sit and read books. We both like to, you know, certain movies or certain entertainment or things like that. It was all very wonderful. And then we added kids. And I don't want to do anything a baby wants to do. Okay? And I don't want to do those things at the times the babies want to do them. And I remember that having babies, now that they're in here, now that they're growing up, I love that. You know, I love, you know, when you start interacting with them. But the baby stage was very trying to me. The baby stage was a stage where I realized how much sin I had within me. I mean, I remember being very angry, boiling angry, at a baby. And thinking to myself, you are a wicked person. Right? That's what I was saying. I was like, man, this shows me, it was a mirror to show me that, like, I'm not well. You know? And relationships do that. Battles between us are caused by battles within us. It makes no sense for us to continue to blame other people or circumstances for the real problem. And what ends up happening, and what James is talking about, is friendly fire. You end up thinking somebody's your enemy that's not your enemy, and you end up firing upon them. And and a person that gets this, guys, a person that gets that battles between him and other people are caused by battles within, has tons of hope. I mean, that person's going to change. A couple where they both realize that battles between them are caused by battles within them, will succeed. The ones that don't, won't. Guaranteed. I mean, Tasha and I have, you know, counseled with enough couples to see the pattern. If they both realize that battles between them are from battles within them, it's going to go great eventually, okay? But if they don't, it won't. You can't take two people that are thinking the other person's the problem and make anything of it. James here wants to teach us how to fight right. He wants us to attack the real enemies, not friendly fire, with the right weapons. Verses 1 through 7 give us the real enemies. Verses 7 through 12 give us the right weapons. First, let's look at the real enemies. And in this passage, I see three. In verse 1, I see the flesh, and I'll dig into that in verse 1. In verse 4, I see the world. And in verse 7, I see the devil. Those are your real enemies. Your real enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil. And so we're going to go through those, look at those, so that the other person that you thought was the real problem, you take your eyes off them, and, and actually zero in on the real problem. First, the flesh. Um, take a look at verse 1. It says, What causes quarrels what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What causes fights and quarrels among us? What stirs up the battles within us? The flesh. The word here isn't here, the flesh, but I see it in the words passions and desires. And when I'm talking about the flesh, I'm not talking about your physical body, right? The Bible sometimes does use the word flesh as physical body. 
I'm talking about something deeper than your physical body. When I say the flesh, I'm meaning that part of you that remains in opposition to God in this life. Okay? There is a part of you that remains in opposition to God through the rest of this life. You know, the resurrection and the glorification that gets removed. But there's this thing. It's, like a, it's an internal well of polluted passions. It's a well of disordered desires. It's a, it's a well of warped wants. That's the flesh. That's the enemy within you. Okay? You have an enemy within you. All of you carry, even as Christians, an enemy within you. It's like the old line said, we have seen the enemy and he is us. Okay? He's in the house. It's like the horror movie, right? He's in the house. Like he's in me. He's following me around. And that's my greatest enemy. And so the desire in and of itself is not a sinful thing, but we can desire something too much. And so a desire for a good thing can become an evil desire if it's an idol. And idols are things we want too much. They're good things we've made an ultimate thing. I'll give you a list. You want probably respect at work. You want help around the house. You want sex in marriage. You want obedient children. You want nicer possessions. You want peace and quiet. You want freedom for your hobbies and your sports and things like that. You want support from your parents. You want recognition for your service. These are all reasonable and good things. The problem is when we want them too much. And that's when they become idols or sinful desires. Sometimes we mess it up because we think, well, idols, you know, these sculptures people bow down to, yeah, those are idols. Or idols are just bad things. But idols can be good things that we want too much. Paul Tripp does this really cool illustration with his hand where he says, a, a desire that's a good desire is like an open hand. You know, it's an open hand. I want this thing. God could put it in. He could take it out. There'd be some pain in him taking it out, but it, it's a want. It's a, I want, right? And then what happens is our hearts start to need, right? Our hearts start to wrap around that thing, and it becomes a closed hand, which is I need this thing. And a closed hand is very quickly a fist with which I will fight other people, and I will attempt to even fight God. And that's what we do when we have desires that become too strong. And guys, if we don't identify and repent of our idols, we're going to end up fighting the wrong enemy. We're going to end up fighting each other, right, in the church, in the family. We're going to end up fighting each other or even try to fight God instead of fighting what our real target is. And our real target here is the flesh. He says you, in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This isn't literal murder. I know there's some commentators that go, well, there were the zealots back then, and maybe they were really murdering each other. Okay, there'd be more than one verse on it if they were really murdering each other, right? Like James would probably devote the whole letter to that. Hey, guys, stop murdering each other. Okay, this isn't literal murder, but this is what Jesus talked about, right? He said that bitterness and resentment and anger and feuds is a heart murder, what he said right if you hate your brother it's like you're murdering them our conflicts guys with each other are fueled by our own frustrated desires aren't they our own frustrated desires our fights and quarrels are symptoms of idolatry and we never want to admit that we have a million justifications but the fact of the matter is is that our fights and quarrels are symptoms of idolatry instead and what we should be doing in this text points us to it in a beautiful way Instead of quarreling with each other, guys, you know who we should quarrel with, with the things we want? We should quarrel with God. We should quarrel with him in prayer. Look at verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask. He's like, you want to fight somebody for something? Fight with the Lord in prayer. Wrestle with him in prayer, right? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly, spending on your passions. Instead of quarreling with each other, we should be quarreling with God in prayer. Do you guys remember Jacob? 
Genesis chapter 32, right? So Jacob was the kind of guy that was constantly trying to wrestle other people for blessing. He was constantly fighting with other people, just trying to get advantage from people, trying to quarrel with people for blessing and things that he desired. And he had this huge string of wrecked relationships, right, to show for it. Then there's that night in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestles with God until daybreak. You remember what Jacob said to God? I won't let go of you until you you give me what I want, until you bless me. I'm not going to let go of you. And they wrestled all night. And, of course, God's like, you know, he could just smote him push the smoke button, but he wrestles with him, right? He wrestles with him. He quarrels with him for what he wants, and what's so cool is, what does God change Jacob's name to that day? To Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means wrestles with God. Isn't that cool? God names him wrestle with me, and then he names his whole people that, right? What does it say about God that he goes, you know what I'm going to call you guys? Wrestle with me. (laughs) Like, he likes it. He wants you to wrestle with him in prayer, and God's New Testament people are often talked about as a spiritual Israel. He's saying, wrestle with me. That's what we need to do. We need to take our passions and desires to God and wrestle with him, quarrel with him in prayer about it. And then he's going to show us which of those are idols, right? By not granting them. That's how, that's how that works. So our first enemy is the flesh. Second enemy is the world. Take a look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose, the scriptures say? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. What causes fights and quarrels with us, within us, among us, is love of the world. And by the world here, it doesn't mean the physical world, because the physical world is a good thing. It's a good creation of God. And it doesn't even mean unbelieving people. What the world means in this text is it's a system, guys. It's a system of influence that shapes your desires and your values and your wants and your loves and draws you away to God. Okay? Some of you guys are real into conspiracy theories and stuff like that. This is the real conspiracy. This is the one that's actually happening. Is There is a system in the world that is shaping your wants and desires and your values and your loves to draw you away from God. And you're being discipled by the world every day. Okay? And I've got a slide about that, about what kind of discipleship's occurring. But God is, through Christ, is discipling us in one way, but the culture is discipling us in another way. So the culture's way of discipling us is to make us consumers. The culture is all about consumerism. And you're a good disciple of the culture if you're consumeristic, whereas Jesus is discipling us to be servants. So a consumer looks out what's best for me, what works best for me, what's convenient for me, what do I enjoy, whereas Christ is discipling us to be servants. Culture disciples us to be individuals, individualistic, individualism, which means it's all about me. It's all about what I need. I'm going to isolate. i got to take care of me, guys. I need some me time. You guys have some memes on this? You see some stuff on social media about this, right? You need some me time. Mom needs me time. You know, we need to be individuals. And then what do we have here? Jesus' discipleship is about community. It's about other people. How can I serve others? Um, Immediacy versus Eternity, that's really common in our culture. I mean, I can get anything I want in like a day to my house through Amazon. It's amazing, right? It's immediate. I don't have to wait for it. Culture disciples to want things now, pleasures now, what we want now, all our demands now, like a little baby, right? I need everything I want and I need it now, right? Whereas Jesus disciples us to think about eternity and later and what he's going to do for us in the world to come. The culture disciples us to be emotion-driven, big time. How does it feel? How does that make you feel? Does that make you feel good? 
Did you like how that made you feel? And a lot of times we decide our doctrine this way, right? You know, the Bible says this, but how does that make me feel? Not good. Can't be true because it doesn't make me feel good. It's like we're emotion-driven, right? Follow your emotions. Follow your heart. Follow your passions. Know your desire. Be all you can be today. Follow that passion, right? There's memes like crazy on this. Whereas Jesus' disciples to be truth-driven. Is it true? Versus how does it feel? Our culture disciples us to think about therapy. My problem is, and I'm not saying nobody needs therapy because people need therapy, but that our main problem is therapeutic, that I need therapy. Whereas Jesus said, you know what your main problem is? You're a sinner. Those are different, guys. Very different. Very different problem, very different solution. So, and then lastly, our culture disciples us to think about our own achievements and to have that, those fuel us, whereas Jesus disciples us to think about grace and what he's done on our behalf. And guys, Every day, the culture is discipling you in this column right here. Every day. Every day. That two hours a day you spend on social media is discipling you. Okay? It is discipling you. And the thing is, is that 45 minutes a week doing this cannot counteract two hours a day doing that. It's just impossible. you got to think about it. Think about your own discipleship. Think about the hours you spend and what you're spending them doing. Right? Or you think about like whatever you're, you know, looking at, whatever you're reading, whatever you're listening to is shaping you, guys. Constantly shaping you. So you got to think through all your inputs. And I'm not saying I'm gonna t- this isn't the kind of church we're going to tell you, oh, you got to watch these kind of movies or not those kind of movies, this kind of music. You need to think about discipleship. You're being shaped by every influence you, you bring into yourself in those six areas. And the more that you're being shaped by the culture, the more fights and quarrels you will have. Right? The more you're living in this column right here, guys, the more, like James talks about, what causes fights and quarrels? You're being discipled. Being discipled by the world. And, and he talks about in here, verse 4, that you, there's a friendship with the world. What's friendship with the world? It's when you've cozied up now. You've cozied up to the world's values and loves and wants and goals. Right? And at some point, you become more than friends with the world. Right? Verse 4 says, you adulterous people become more than a friendship. Right? It's become deeper than that. It's really interesting in this verse 4 where he calls out this church and he says, you adulterous people. It's in the feminine, by the way, not the masculine. So he talks about brothers and beloved brothers, and now he's like, you adulteresses, right? He's using a feminine word. And it's quite shocking, right? Wait a minute, I thought we were brothers. I thought we were beloved brothers. Now you're calling me an adulteress. I'm confused, right? What's going on here? But guys, there is a rich theme of this in the Old Testament, isn't there? God has a bride. His bride is unfaithful and constantly needing to be wooed back to him, right? We see that in Isaiah and Jeremiah. We see it in Ezekiel 16. We see especially in in the book of Hosea, right, where he has this bride that's an unfaithful bride. She's both beloved and unfaithful at the same time. And, And as Christians, we are a part of that one bride, Old Testament, New Testament. God has one people as one bride that is both beloved and unfaithful. And God, it says in here, is jealous for her. See that, verse 5? Or do you suppose it's to no purpose, as the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us? Some people are really bothered by that. I mean, Oprah was very bothered by that. There's a very famous clip of her talking about the reason she walked away from the church is she was in some sermon, and she heard God's a jealous God, and she was done, right? And people think, yeah, it's so unbecoming of God to be jealous in this way. You know, jealous is only a negative thing. But guys, how else should God feel towards his people that are unfaithful to him? 
Think about it. It's a very reasonable thing, and it's a very righteous thing. Wouldn't it be strange and even unloving for a husband to have no jealousy if his wife is unfaithful to him? Wouldn't that be strange? Wouldn't it be unloving? His jealousy, guys, is actually a tremendous comfort and compliment. (laughs) The fact that the God of the universe would care so much about your unfaithfulness to him is an amazing compliment, actually. It shows how much he values you and he loves you. And it's an amazing comfort, guys, because he's never going to let you go. He's never going to let you go. He's a God that will pursue his bride over and over again to bring her back. And so our enemies so far are the flesh, the world, and then the devil. Look at verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, it's caused by our own flesh. It's caused by the world. And there are also, in addition to that, there is an intelligent being behind these attacks. I don't know how often you think of that. There's an intelligent being, actually multiple intelligent beings, behind the attacks on your relationships. I think this is very, very, very helpful to know, guys. When you're in conflict in your marriage or friendship or in the church, you got to keep in mind, like, okay, there's more than just like, it's, I know I got sin, I know the world's discipling me a certain way, but there's also the attack of the enemies trying to create division. Ephesians 6 says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's hard to believe, but we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're ultimately against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so you got to think about that. you got to think, what causes fights and quarrels among us? That, that Satan is actually actively trying to plant division between us. Super important. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, We would not want to be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. You, you need to think about that. You need to think about that married people. You need to think about that in this church. When you have people you're on the outs with and you can't get right with them, it, it, to think through, like, Satan would want this, guys. Ephesians 4.26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Give no opportunity to the devil. Married people, when you go to bed embittered against each other and you are at the farthest edge of the mattress to where you might even fall off and you're seething mass angry, And there's this sea of mattress between you. This is what I want you to think about next time. I want you to think about Satan kicking it right in between you. Just laying in that big spot and being like, yes. That's the reality. That's the reality. That huge sea, he's kicking it there and he's laughing. He's loving it. He's loving it. Guys, that's Satan's MO, right? Satan's MO is divide and conquer, right? Spread up the sheep and eat them individually. That's what he does, like any wolf. Spread out the sheep and eat them individually. And we live in a time, guys, where the church is becoming, in our culture, increasingly fragmented, partly because a lot of those influences of commercialism and individualism and all those things, a lot of people are just saying, I don't need the church, I don't need to gather with the church, I don't need to be a part of a church. I mean, talk to Christians out there. Like, I would say it's maybe the majority that are not, you know, committed and regularly a part of, of of a church. And that's exactly what Satan's trying to do. Spread them out and eat them individually. That's the whole plan. We fall right into it. So, this sounds grim, doesn't it? What causes quarrels and fights between us? You know, we've got this enemy inside of us. We've got the world discipling us. We've got the devil. This all sounds very grim, and it is. But, look at verse 6. In the middle of all these enemies, we see what? There's a word, beautiful little word, but. You see it? Verse 6. But what? But he gives more grace. 
Isn't that awesome? You hear all this and you're like, but he gives more grace. And this grace, guys, isn't just forgiving grace. He does give more forgiving grace. This grace, guys, is fighting grace. And I know it from the context. So God gives both forgiving grace in abundance, as much as we need, and he also gives fighting grace because forgiving grace is passive. It's like, I received this gift. Jesus died for my sins. He's given me salvation. It's a gift. I can't earn it. I can't lose it. It's something that's mine. It's a gift, right? It's passive. Fighting grace is not passive. Fighting grace is about war. And so we want to look in here right now is what are the weapons of war against our real enemies? So James started with, why do we fight with each other? And now he's moving towards, how do we fight the real enemy with what weapon? Instead of fighting each other, we want to fight the flesh and the world and the devil. And how? What weapons? And the first weapon we've got here is communion with God. Take a look at it. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I find very interesting in this passage how quickly Satan just got dispatched. Did you see it? It's amazing, guys. Amazing the power that's here. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, and what? He flees. He flees. It's amazing. Guys, the devil is uh, powerless to harm a Christian who is submitted to and drawn near to God. Okay? Where we get shredded is we have drifted from the Lord, we're away from the source of power, and we get shredded. You guys remember in Pilgrim's Progress, there's that little path that Christian has to walk down, and there's the lions on both sides, and they're going to tear them up, right? And there's this little path, and there's lions, like that. And Bunyan adds this little comment, the lions were chained up, but he saw not the chains. And so, what, Bunyan needs, what the Christian needs to do in this story is he needs to walk submitted and close to the Lord down this path, and they can rage like crazy. They can't get him. Now, if he veers from the path, dude's shredded, and not in the good way, okay? In the bad way. Not shredded like I am, but like shredded <laughs> in a bad way. Okay. Guys, one thing to realize about Satan is he is not God's opposite, I think sometimes we get into this mindset that like, oh, I get it. There's a good God and a bad God. No, no, no. no. You guys read um, Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Doyle's detective story, right? You got Sherlock Holmes. Who's Sherlock Holmes' nemesis? Yeah, Professor Moriarty. Seems like you'd be able to find him at his college if he's Professor Moriarty. But, so that's the enemy, right? Guys, Satan's relationship to God is not like Moriarty's relationship to Sherlock Holmes, Okay. Moriarty's, uh, Satan's relationship to God is like Moriarty's relationship to Sir Arthur Doyle. Okay? You get that? Okay? That's a very different relationship. Okay? Satan's relationship to God is not like Moriarty's relationship to Sherlock Holmes. It's like Moriarty's relationship to Doyle. Okay? And the important reason to see that is that Satan is no more God's nemesis than Moriarty is Doyle's nemesis. Okay? He can dispatch him anytime he wants. It's the distinction between creature and creator, guys. I want to put it to you this way, just to emphasize the power of God, is Satan is no closer to God's power than we are. Because he's not on the same spectrum. Okay? Like, he's not on the same spectrum. Satan and us are on the same spectrum, and he's way more powerful than us, and like I said, you stray from the path, and it's like the lions that shred you. They'll shred you. Okay? Not in a good way. But Satan, guys, is not on the same spectrum of power as God. He's not even on the same spectrum because God's creator and Satan's a creature. He's a creature. He's in the same category as us. 
He's an angel, we're human, so we're different that way, but we're the same in the sense that we're creatures, we're limited, which means that if you will submit yourself to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from you because God has the power to do this. This isn't a wrestling match for God. Our whole thing is we need to be walking a lot closer to the Lord, right? That's the real problem. Okay, second weapon of grace is repentance. Look at verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Repentance, guys, starts with conviction of sin. And conviction of sin does not feel good. Okay, we're in a culture where we want to feel good all the time. Here's the thing. Conviction of sin feels terrible. Look at verse 9. Be wretched, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy be turned to gloom. Conviction of sin, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, it makes us feel terrible. And that's a gift, guys. That's a huge gift. Because conviction of sin, guys, takes us away from the danger of the enemy and welcomes us home. Conviction of sin is always like, hey, you need to come back home. You need to come back to me, right? And it's really important, I've shared this with you guys before, but it's really important, guys, to distinguish between conviction and condemnation. I have a little slide about that. Both feel terrible. And it's very important that you can tell the difference between the two of them. For example, conviction is from God. Condemnation is from Satan. Conviction leads to life. Condemnation leads to death. Conviction ends in joy. Condemnation ends in sorrow. Conviction makes us want to change. Now, condemnation makes us believe we can't change. Makes us believe we need to stay away from the Lord. You're done. He's tired of you. He doesn't want to hear it again from you. That kind of stuff, right? It's super important. When you're counseling other people, very important to tell them about this. Uh, Conviction leads to your new identity of Christ, in Christ. Condemnation leads to your old identity in sin. Conviction brings awareness of specific sin. The condemnation is just a general, like, I'm trash, God doesn't want anything to do with me, I've kind of, like, outstayed my welcome with him. It's general, right? Conviction's specific. It gives you specific sin to repent of. Conviction looks to Jesus. Condemnation kind of keeps on looking at yourself, looking at how you don't measure up. Um, Conviction is a blessing. Condemnation is a burden. The reason why this is important, guys, is that conviction of sin is always an invitation to return home to the Lord, right? 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you today feel convicted about some particular sin, like that is God's gift to you. He's saying, leave that. Come home. Come to me. Confess that. Be clean. Enjoy the grace of God. Enjoy my presence again. You don't need to be on the outside and continue to dwell in all that. And what's cool, guys, is what leads us back to the Lord consistently is his goodness. Remember in Hebrews, it says it's his kindness that leads to repentance. Like, we're only going to return to the Lord if we see that he's good and he's gracious, that he's affectionately jealous for you. He desires you particularly and wants you back. We're going to come back if we see that he wants to enjoy friendship with us, that he's promised covenant love to us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Just realize that? God's covenant love is that he promises to be with us and never forsake us. God, we're going to come back to him if we see his goodness and grace in that he, he draws near to us. It says, draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. And you might think like, what, did we both move? You know? If I draw near the Lord, he'll draw near to me. Think about the prodigal son. 
Remember when the prodigal son finally started coming home? You remember what the father did? He saw him in the distance and ran toward him. Father didn't go anywhere, guys. He didn't go anywhere in your situation either. We're the drifters. We drifted. He stayed in one place. But he will actually come out and pursue us if we'll draw near to him. How awesome is this, guys? God wants to restore your joy and salvation. And when we resist repentance, we're just resisting our own joy. We're like, no, 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 I'm fine. No, you're not. Like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Uh, sin's really making me happy. Oh, yeah, it looks like it. You know, like, it's just, we're being stubborn. We're fighting our own joy. What is that about? We're crazy, right? The gospel shows us, guys, that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, and yet at the same time in Christ, we're more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. In the gospel, we see we're both unfaithful and beloved. It's his goodness and grace that leads us back. And so, um, I got a little bit of a diagram. It's a repentance thing. I got complaints last week uh, that my diagram was made out of clip art, and, uh, and so anyway, I'm repenting there. So Martin Luther said that in the 95 Theses that all of the Christian life is repentance. And so, and so if we have God, we have sin, we tend to do this thing, right, where we drift, right? We just keep drifting away to sin, right? And we have that, you know, verses 1, one through 4. We tend to drift. We're prone to wander. Prone to wander to sin. Repentance, so this is drifting. I know that's too small for you to see. And then there's repentance, right? To return. Return to the Lord. And so the Christian life is about this. We drift. We don't want to, but we do. We need to constantly, throughout every day, we're repenting, right? Coming back to the Lord, repenting of sin. And I know, guys, when you see that, you think, like, yep, that's my life. One thing that can happen is that we can grow very tired of doing this. Can't we? Anybody ever experience repentance fatigue? You have a particular sin that, that you keep on falling into and you keep on repenting and you get to the point where you're like, I just can't keep repenting. This is exhausting. And I don't know that God wants to even hear from me at this point. It seems like a vicious cycle. It seems like it's going nowhere. One thing that we're not seeing, though, in, when we're doing this, when we're constantly returning to the Lord and repenting, is it's not a vicious cycle because if you imagine this in three dimensions... What's really going on when we repent over and over again, even of the same sin, and keep coming back to him? It, it's not a vicious cycle. When you look at it in three dimensions, it's like a drill, right? This is actually the way we grow, right? This is actually the way we grow. We grow by continually repenting. It's, it's, there's a movement occurring here that you don't see because you're looking at it this way, right? That as we repent and continually repent to him, we're getting closer and closer to him and we're growing, Right? That's what's really happening. And so I'd say, keep repenting, it's working. Even though it seems like you're doing this, you're doing this. And what maturity looks like, guys, is quicker returns, right? That I wouldn't take so long to repent and come back to him, but it would be tighter. It doesn't look like not drifting, but it looks like a lot faster repentance. Coming back to him at the first sign of danger and returning to him. So I hope that's an encouragement to you because that's something that has really helped me is that God is doing something through this process of continual repentance. It doesn't look like it's going anywhere, but it's going somewhere. The last weapon of grace is this, guys. The last weapon of grace is each other. Take a look at verse 11. I won't spend a lot of time on this. But he says, Do not speak evil of one another, brothers. For the one who speaks against a brother and judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. 
But who are you to judge your neighbor? Church, we need each other. Desperately need each other. Amen? Amen. We need each other. We need each other. And I'm not just saying, like, you need me. I'm saying, we need each other. We all need each other. We need to stick together because the enemy would have us do what this passage is saying. The enemy would have us speak evil against each other. Right? You guys have all done it. You drive around in the car or whatever, and you just start talking about people, speaking evil people. That's what the enemy wants us to do, right, as a church. Speak evil against each other. By the way, there's no problem here. I just want to say that. It's not like there's a problem and I'm trying to address it. This is preventative medicine. This is like vaccines. Okay. He wants us to speak evil of each other. He wants us to judge each other, right? And we do that, and that's why Christians separate. They judge each other. He wants us to separate from each other, and because that's his tactic, guys, right? Remember, I told you, he's like any wolf. He wants to separate the sheep and eat them individually, right? We need each other. Resist the urge to speak evil and judge the people in this room. And I want to give you two ways to help you do that. One is realize that every Christian you know lives under the constant assault of the flesh, the world, and the devil just like you. I think a lot of times we look at other Christians like, when's she going to get her act together? Like, what is this? And we think that somehow we're the only ones that are under the constant assault of the flesh, the world, and the devil. It's a miracle she's doing as well as she is, actually. It's a miracle you're doing as well as you are. It's a miracle of God's grace, right? Have grace on them. Realize that every single person in this room is dealing with a hidden battle that you do not see that's significant, maybe worse than yours. Secondly, realize that every Christian you know is both unfaithful and yet beloved by God just like you, right? Every Christian is unfaithful. We all are prone to wander, and yet we're beloved by God. We need to be real about both as a community. We need to be real about the fact that we're unfaithful. James 5 says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed, right? We need to celebrate our belovedness. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper Lord's Supper is a celebration of the amazing love of God. In it, we celebrate that God has taken away our guilt and shame. That though we are those adulteresses, though we are those unfaithful to him, by his body and blood, which the bread and the cup symbolize, by his body and blood on the cross, he's taken away the shame of our unfaithfulness. As we turn to him and confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you ought to feel that today. You ought to repent of your sin, take the Lord's Supper, and feel that. We celebrate that God has given us new hearts that actually want to live faithful to him. Isn't that cool? That's a wonderful thing. You didn't used to have that. I don't know if you remember. But you didn't have that. And now you actually want to live faithful to him. We also celebrate that God will return one day and make his bride perfect in faithfulness. How does that sound? Ephesians 5 talks about that. He's going to make us not only all, we'll have no sin, but we'll have no desire for sin. We're going to be faithful to him completely. Amen? Isn't that awesome? And in the meantime, God has given us this way of communing with Christ. And so we're remembering his death, and we're also, because it's called communion, communing with Christ. The Belgian Confession says this about the Lord's Supper. It's a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us with all of his benefits at that table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits of his suffering and death. I like that. At the table, he makes us enjoy himself as much as the merits. So remember the things he did on the cross for us, but we're enjoying just as much or even more the person of Christ, who he is. We're enjoying him. 
And he nourishes, it's, it goes on to say, he nourishes, strengthens, and comforts our poor and desolate souls by eating his flesh, and he relieves and renews us by the drinking of his blood. Realize, guys, that this is something we do together because we need each other. Father, we thank you that you are a God who continually seeks out your people. You find us when we are like the prodigal son. We've wandered and we're in the mud with the pigs, eating whatever falls out of their mouths. And then you give us that thought, I could return to my father's house. I don't have to live like this. I don't have to be here. And you draw us back. You convict us. You draw us back. And then as we are coming back, we see you running towards us. It's amazing. I pray, Lord, for all of us that are in this room, Lord, that we would turn to you. That we'd enjoy you more than we enjoy sin. You're far more enjoyable than anything out in that world. We pray, Lord, that we would truly turn in that way. I thank you, Lord, for all these people that love you all these people that desire you, all these people that repent every day of their tempers, of their thoughts, of their lusts, of their discontentment, Lord. Lord, I pray they wouldn't be weary. Lord, make them not weary in doing good, but to continue to persevere. Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray, Lord, feed us. Give us the strength to keep going. Lord Jesus, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken our hope that we may know you as you truly are, both in the word and in the breaking of the spread. We pray you grant this for the sake of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.